Matthew chapter 7 is where we will start. And uh, it's good to see you this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, for those who are visiting with us and for our members, this is Q&A morning, uh, which is the morning once a month where I answer questions you've submitted to me beforehand. And uh, so we uh, take some time to go through a response to those things. Sometimes you guys give me questions that are really hard and you did it again. And uh, so I'm a little frustrated, but I can't be too frustrated because they're questions that when I get done, you may have just as many questions as you did before, or perhaps if I'm successful, even more questions. Uh, which is kind of counterproductive, right? But anyway, I appreciate you uh, submitting these questions. As always, uh, I'm always on the lookout for more questions. So if you have things that you are curious about that have to do with the Bible or how the Bible interfaces with the things that we do in our uh, Christian lives, then uh, please let me know about those things. So uh, that's my introduction this morning. The first question, we're really going to have two major questions. The first question is, can someone sincerely search for truth and still come to the wrong answer. Okay, so uh, the gist of this question is about, is it always true that someone who is sincere in seeking truth will find it? So we're talking about a person maybe who doesn't know Jesus and who decides they want to know the truth about the world and life and eternal life and all these things, and so they start to seek it, and uh, are they going to always find what's true? And it also the question seems to be talking some about somebody who believes in Jesus but may not be worshiping or serving Jesus in the full measure of the truth. So they begin to sincerely seek the truth. Are they always going to find it? Are they always going to come to the right answer? Or is it possible that we could come to different answers than someone else who is also sincerely seeking truth? So that's the question. And to begin with, I think we have to start with a biblical principle about sincerity and seeking. And that's why we're in Matthew 7. The idea here that I want to establish for just a moment at the beginning of answering this question is that if we are sincere in seeking truth, the Bible tells us we will find truth. So Matthew 7 and verse 7, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one to the one who knocks it will be opened. So Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, and do it with a confidence that God is going to respond to your efforts and your seeking. Now, the primary context of this passage is prayer. Jesus is talking about prayer. He's talking to his disciples about how they pray in confidence that the things that they ask for, God's going to give them. But I believe that there is sort of a broader truth here, which is that God is going to give blessings to the ones who seek those blessings from him. If we ask him, if we seek him, if we knock, he is going to be the one to give us what we're searching But the passage does stress, you can see it, ask, seek, not, that we have a burden too, that we have something we must do in order to pursue God and in order to seek those things. So you can see where that touches on part of the question, the idea of searching for truth, uh, but it doesn't really introduce the idea of sincerity, at least not here. But I'm just sort of laying a groundwork here. Let's go over to John chapter 7 now. John 7. You guys, if if, uh, you've been paying attention have probably noticed that sometimes I use this passage uh, to talk about this issue. It's not a passage I normally hear in this connection, but it's one that is relevant, in my opinion, because it talks about the the desire or the motive of a seeker. In John 7, verse 14, John 7, 14, it says, "...about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, "'How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied?' So Jesus answered them, "'My teaching is not mine.'" But him who's his who sent me, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. 
So they're in this mode, and, and a lot of this happens in the middle of these middle parts of John, where they're wondering, who is Jesus, and is he truly the Messiah? What do we decide about him? And so they have a question about where his teaching comes from, because how could he teach like this if he's never studied? And Jesus says, it's not my teaching. But verse 17, he says, if anyone's will, desire, motive, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So he is saying one of the keys to understanding and correctly parsing this whole question about who Jesus is, is what your true motive is. Is your desire to do the will of the Father or do you have some other desire? And he talks about those different motives sometimes in John where he talks about you may have a desire to uh, do the will of Satan, to do the will of your father, his desires you want to do. Or you may have a desire to please men. He talks about in John 5, how can you believe when you seek to please men? Okay, that, that, those two things are contradictory because motives matter in when we're seeking truth. So it's here that I think Jesus introduces the idea of sincerity. It's not just about searching, which obviously everybody in this context is doing. It's about how sincere are you in your motives for this search. And it may be that if we're searching for truth, but we're searching for truth so that, this is just a list off the top of my head, if we're searching for truth so that we can condemn other people, so that we can know that we're better than others, so we can confirm things we've always believed, those searches for truth might not come up with actual truth, right? They might instead come up with what confirms what we are seeking. So he says what's important is that you are seeking to do the will of the Father. Let's go over to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So we're just establishing a principle at this stage that there is a connection between sincerely seeking truth and finding it. 2 Thessalonians 2, I'm going to read beginning in verse 9. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So Paul is warning about the coming of the lawless one, and he says he thrives on false signs, lying wonders. And he says specifically, this is first part is in verse 10, they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So that says that not that they didn't seek the truth, but they did not love the truth. And because they did not love the truth, they were not saved because they did not accept it or follow it. In verse 12, he says, in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I want to call those two verses to your attention because they both speak to motives. They did not love the truth and they had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so they did not believe the truth. And so God in this scene is actually allowing them to believe what's not true. In fact, he is encouraging them in that. In verse 11, it says he sends them strong delusions so that they would believe the lie because they did not care about the truth. They did not love the truth or want the truth. So this is an important idea because in this little setting, Paul is describing a rebellion or an apostasy and a man of lawlessness who claims this incredible authority. And if that's connected to some of the other figures in the New Testament, talking about the, the Antichrist or in Revelation, the, the beast the false prophet and all those, if those are connected, then it's clear that a whole bunch of people are following after this one who's leading everyone astray. And so what he is saying is the people who are going to be spared that or saved from that are those who love the truth enough 
to go against what everybody else is doing and say, I love truth more than I love acceptance from other people. Sometimes we have a saying that the truth hurts. Okay, and we know what that means. We know that sometimes we would rather believe something that's not true just because it's more comforting or it's easier. But the truth, you know, it sometimes tells us things about ourselves we don't like and about the world that we don't like. So what he is saying here is we have to develop a love for the truth and a desire for the truth. We have to sincerely search for truth or else there is danger. And that's what this text is saying. Turn the page to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, it's just one page over in my Bible. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 3 says, 1 Timothy 2, 3, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All right, so this is God's will. It says specifically there, uh, God desires this, that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants men to seek and want to do his will, to love the truth and to be saved through it. All right, so you got all that. So basically, all of these passages, you kind of put them all together, and you get the idea that those who seek truth and are sincere in that and love truth will find it, because that's God's will for them. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. And I think these passages work together. And I believe that that principle explains a lot of what you see in specific instances in the New Testament. Sincere seekers find God in the New Testament. Cornelius is a devout Gentile. He is trying to do right. He fears God. He gives alms. He prays continuously. And so God connects him with Peter. He hears the gospel, and he is saved. The Ethiopian eunuch has come all the way to Jerusalem to worship. He is going back, and as he's going back, I mean, after church, he's reading his Bible, right? He's reading Isaiah in the chariot on the way home. And... Philip overtakes the chariot at the instruction of the Spirit, and uh, he hears about Jesus, and he is baptized. He goes on his way rejoicing. Seekers, finding. Lydia is in the city of Philippi. She's meeting with the women down by the river. The Lord opened her heart to hear the things taught by Paul, and so she accepts the gospel. She becomes a Christian. Seekers find truth. Sincere seekers find truth. In fact, I would go so far as to say that God kind of has a knack for putting sincere seekers together with people who are going to help them find truth. That's something God seems to almost enjoy doing and then telling us about. I I imagine that if we look at our lives and experiences and stories we have heard and maybe our own situations, we can say the same thing. That sometimes in wild ways, in fascinating ways, God connects seekers with people who can help them find the truth. I know we've heard those stories as well. But... Can someone sincerely search for truth and still come to the wrong answer? So while I believe everything that I have said so far is true, I have a hard time applying it universally in every matter. So sometimes people have questions about this. This is not the question, although it may raise the question now. Somebody else might have this question. Uh, Sometimes people ask the question, well, what about people who live in a civilization uh, far away, remote part of Africa, and they never hear about Jesus? You know, and they never understand the gospel, never hear the gospel. You know, what, what does God do with them? I, I still take comfort in this, that those who are sincerely seeking are going to find God. I just don't know. That, that's kind of God's business. I don't know how God's going to judge that and deal with that, but God will do it in a just and fair way. But in terms of, you know, how does that work in every case? Can I talk about every person and go to them and say, well, 
if you're not finding God, you must not be sincere. That to me seems a little bit of a stretch in applying that principle that we've talked about. And then I have to ask the question, is, is this principle true that whoever sincerely seeks truth will find it? Is it true about every matter? Every matter. Or let me say it more specifically. Could you honestly say that everyone who disagrees with you is always wrong about everything? You are right. They are wrong. And so, as a result, they must not be sincere in their seeking. If you are only a little more sincere, then you would come to the right conclusion, which is mine because I'm always sincere. I mean, are we ready for that? To me, that would go a little too far in applying some of this. I will also speak for myself. My understanding of certain matters has changed over time so that some of the positions that I used to hold much more intensely, I have backed off, and some positions that I used to hold loosely, I'm much stronger about now. Some of that is experience, but I don't believe that I'm suddenly much more sincere than I used to be. What do I say about that time in between? Well, that's a hard question. Was I less sincere then? Am I more sincere now? To me, it may be something beyond just the idea of sincerity and my seeking. For example, I think we also have to admit that our upbringing has an impact on what we believe and why. I think we have to, believe, uh, have to admit that our personalities and our experiences have an impact on that. They're not the only things that matter, but it seems to me to be dishonest to deny that those things affect the way I think about my spiritual life and the things that I believe. So here is my concern. My concern is that as we, as we go through this idea of sincerely searching for truth, we're tempted to say that people who disagree with us are just evil and insincere. And that the reason you disagree is because you need to seek a little more sincerely. You must have a bad motive that's corrupting the process. And to me, that's a little too far for what we can actually say about others from this principle. It seems to me like a pretext for some self-justification and also a little bit of the, uh, the beam and the eye problem. So the question then is, is there a place for differing opinions? Aren't there topics where we would say, you know, there's just not enough information here to draw a line where I can say I'm definitely right and you're definitely wrong. We might have our suggestions, our leanings, our beliefs, but we just would say, you know what, I don't know enough about that uh, to be able to say this is the only right way to think about that. Uh, let's read this verse again that we're open to. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3. It says, This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So when Paul says that in that last part of verse 4, to come to the knowledge of the truth, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, it sure seems to me to be speaking primarily about unbelievers who come to understand and obey the gospel. So it, it seems to me to be talking about the kind of people we're talking about, Cornelius and Lydia and uh, the eunuch, who are maybe not super far away from God, but they're not in a right relationship until they find that person who says, here's the gospel and connect them to God. So it seems to me that some of the promises that we're talking about, seek and you'll find, those who sincerely search for truth will find it, may be talking primarily about hearing and understanding the gospel and the saving truth of the gospel as opposed to every element of what the gospel teaches about every matter. So it may be that what Paul is saying here is that's a principle about those who are outside of Christ 
in the sense that they want to hear about Christ more than they want to walk away. And so they love his will, they want to do his will, and they find his will. So it may be that there's a distinction there that helps us understand that. But I I think we do have to admit that even as disciples, even in this congregation, we would say there is a diversity of opinion about a number of matters. And that if you read Romans 14, for example, which talks about two differing opinions, both come to and lived out sincerely that are both acceptable to God. That you then have to ask the question, well, is somebody not seeking enough truth? Or is it just that in some matters God is is just comfortable with the idea of us coming to different conclusions about a matter like do we eat a meat, do we keep a day, and that kind of thing in Romans 14. So it seems to me that there, there has to be some point at which we say these things we need to come to the same conclusion about and these things it's okay if we don't. That is, to me, one of the ways we have to say, well, this may not be a universal principle that we might come to the wrong answer in some sense, and yet that wrong answer, it's not really about a matter that is that important to God or to one another. So, now that we got through all that, well, what do we do about it? Well, first of all, I think we have to say that we begin by sincerely seeking the truth ourselves. This must be our mentality And we have to be aware of the fact that truth is going to hurt sometimes. Truth about ourselves, maybe truth about what we've taught and believed for a long period of time, we have to have the courage to say, I'm going to do right no matter what that means. That begins with us. Then we have the obligation to present our understanding the best that we can. And I especially want to caution us about sometimes our understanding contains way too much of us and not nearly enough of God and God's word. So we have to be careful that we don't say this is just my thoughts and my opinions, but if we're going to say this is a truth issue, let's present the actual truth and talk about the truth. There might be issues that we disagree about, and there might be some that we feel we cannot disagree about amongst ourselves or with our friends and neighbors and our family. But all of those things should be sincere and born of conviction not because we are harsh and offensive in the way that we talk about them. But the main thing I want to say, and and kind of my, my bottom line about this, is that I think we need to be careful. My opinion, I'll own it. Uh, this is my opinion and my impression of uh, this issue. We need to be careful not to assume that we can read other people's motives. We need to be careful not to assume that just because someone believes something that we disagree with, that they are corrupt and evil and have a bad heart. I have to say, I was, I was taught this, not really at home, but with the Christians that I was around, that people who were in denominations, people who were in other congregations who didn't do what we did, they did what they did because they had no respect for God. They didn't care about the Bible. They didn't know anything about the Bible. And they were just rebellious at heart. And uh, it's taken a long time for me to be able to look people who are trying to do the right thing as if they are as sincere as they are, to kind of unlearn some of that. To me, there's nothing good that comes from trying to read the worst into people's motives. Instead, there are times when we discover, as we present truth to people, that they're not interested in following truth. And that is its own issue. 
When people are not interested in following truth and they rebel against truth and they say, no, I see that and I don't want to do it. I've been there and I've watched it happen. It is a disturbing thing. Yet even then, we just have to say, this is their choice to not obey what I clearly see as God's truth. My personal belief is that if people really want to know Jesus and are seeking him, they will find their way to him. He will make that happen. But I am not convinced that that means they will always come to my understanding about every topic that the Bible teaches on. I am not convinced that those two are the same thing. Instead, I'm going to defend my convictions when I have the opportunity. And beyond that, I may have to say that I strongly disagree with your conclusions. I might even have to draw lines of fellowship and say, I cannot join you in this because you have gone too far. But let's let that be on the basis of truth and not on our assumptions about their motives. So I think we need to say that about sincerity. Yes, sincerity is a part of it, and we need to seek sincerity for ourselves. And yet, that's, it may be true that someone is sincerely searching for truth and comes to a different answer than I do. All right. Well, now that you have much more questions, I'm going to move on to the second one. All right. Question number two is actually two questions together. They are both about oaths. Why could Paul swear by an oath when Jesus condemned them? And then a separate question, but it's related. How does Matthew 5, 33 to 37, which is the oath passage, relate to a Christian being sworn in to testify in court or to serve in the military? So let's go over to Matthew chapter 5 for a moment. So mainly uh, the, the two questions are centered around how do we make sense of Jesus' statements on oaths in light of other things we read in the New Testament and uh, in light of current practice. Matthew 5.33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So this section is a section where Jesus is sort of challenging the common understandings of the law of Moses. And so you see that in verse 33. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Actually, I don't like the ESV here. Uh, the idea should be that you perform what you have sworn to the Lord. Okay, Because that was the distinction that the Jews held. If you swore it to the Lord, if you used the name of Jehovah then you had to keep it. But if you have not sworn to Jehovah, ah, you're kind of free. And uh, so this elaborate system of justifications and wrangling came over what specifically you swore by. That's a pretty fair summary. Verse 33 is a pretty fair summary of the Old Testament teaching on oaths, which is essentially if you make an oath, if you make a statement that then you're calling on God to testify about God as my witness then you need to keep your oath. If you say, I'll do this in the name of Jehovah, I promise this, or I swear this is true, then you need to keep your oath. The, the difference is that they are saying only those oaths that involve Jehovah himself should be kept. And that is what Jesus takes issue with. See, when Jews think that you only have to keep your word if Jehovah's name is invoked, that's a problem for Jesus. And in fact, Jesus sort of puts all of this to rest about the idea that you could swear by something that's not 
the name of Jehovah. Because what he does here is say, you know, everything you swear by kind of goes back to God. Do you notice that? Look at verse 34. I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Okay? No, no matter what you swear by, uh, guess what? You're swearing by God. And he's going to do that again in Matthew 23 that we're going to look at in a moment. The point is, Jesus is saying, and he says this specifically in verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let your yes be yes, some versions say. The idea is speak as simply as you, sh- you need to speak. Just say the truth and don't need other people to come in and be a, a witness for you or in some way to confirm your word. Be honest. Be honest instead of seeking all these uh, roundabout ways to justify your words. Let's go over to Matthew 23. Jesus talks a little more about this. And you can kind of get a better picture here for what the Jews were doing with oaths and how deceitful it was. Matthew 23, 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. So you hear what they're doing. I mean, boy, that's pretty nitpicky. Swear by the gold, but not by the temple. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple which has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So you see, he said, it all is going back to God. And your little distinctions are just justifications for your own lies. The point is about honesty. Oaths are a way to strengthen your word by appealing to an outside authority. And Jesus says, that should not be needed for my people. That we can speak the truth and know we're speaking the truth, whether there's oaths or not. And especially, we don't need this whole garbage system of, well, that, if I swore by this, then you know I'm I'm telling the truth. But if not, you can't. So oaths are a product of a society where people can't be trusted. Where when you meet someone and they say something to you, you say, well... I need to know for sure. And so I need something else to to verify that, to test that. And so you seek something else to confirm it. But that's not the way Jesus wants his people to live. We are not a people whose word has to constantly be verified and checked. We are a group of people who keep our word and speak what's true. So these two questions uh, ask how, how do we apply this text? So... How literally, really, is the question? How literally do we take Jesus' prohibition on oaths? So um, we're not going to turn to it this morning for time's sake, but in Matthew 26, Caiaphas puts Jesus under oath and says, tell us, are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus' response is not really clear. In fact, it's kind of famously unclear where he says, you have said so, which makes you say, well, did he keep the oath or not? I mean, is he rejecting that idea? It's just not very clear. So I don't think you can really make heads or tails out of Jesus' response. Uh, But of course, they take his response to be blasphemy and, and worthy of death. But the first question stresses Paul's language. Why could Paul swear by an oath? So I want to show you this in 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1. Paul does this quite frequently. Second Corinthians 1 and verse 23. 
he says, 2 Corinthians 1.23, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. So calling God to witness is a standard oath. Okay, God witness what I'm about to say. Uh, Jehovah see this. What I find notable about this text is that Paul is clearly familiar with Jesus' teaching from Matthew 5 where he says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. The reason I know that is because he talks about it in just a few verses earlier, like in verse 17. Uh, was I ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Okay, that was the accusation. Paul, your word is not enough. You broke your word. You said you were going to come see us, and you didn't come see us. Your yes is not yes. And so in response to that, Paul says, I swear to God, God is my witness. Okay, well, that's a little shocking, isn't it? It's not that Paul didn't know what Jesus said. It's that he still uses this formula to affirm himself, say, I am telling the truth. Romans 1, verse 9, for God is my witness. Paul says it there. Uh, Galatians 1, 20, what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, 8, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, 1 Thessalonians 2, 5. You are witnesses and God also, 1 Thessalonians 2, 10. You see, it's a little bit of a trend. Uh, this is the way Paul talks, the way Paul writes. For Paul, these things seem to be used primarily for emphasis. He is saying, I'm serious about this. I have no trouble saying this, knowing God's listening, knowing God is here watching. Uh, he knows that what I'm saying is true just as much as I do. We also read about God himself making oaths. This is Hebrews 6, 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things one of them being God's word, the other being his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So God uses oaths to reassure his people. So what do you do with all that? How do you make sense of Paul swearing and God swearing, but Jesus saying, don't swear? Well, it seems to me that Jesus' prohibition on oaths is not intended to be taken literally, as if we can never say something like what Paul says, God is witness, or something is solemn, and we promise it in a solemn way. Sometimes we do that uh, when we make wedding vows. We know it's a solemn occasion. We know it's serious. And so in order to demonstrate our awareness, and like that last passage said, to give an even more convincing assurance, we will say things that indicate that we know God is watching and that we are still affirming what we are affirming. So if it's not intended to be literal, then we, we kind of retreat back to what is, what is Jesus actually saying? What's the principle if it's not intended to only forbid all oaths for all time? The principle is honesty in all our dealings and words. It is not wrong to emphasize certain things or to reassure people. What is wrong is to try to use those things to run things by people, to deceive, or to in some way show that we're not trying to tell the truth. The problem is when oaths become a way we try to buy credibility and deceive others so that we can have a way that we say, you know what, I swore by that, so it's nothing. You don't have to believe that, but only when I say this way. The problem is when we're trying to trick people by using loopholes and legal distinctions. That's what Jesus is forbidding, and he says don't use oaths that way. In fact, it's better not to swear at all if that's the way you're going to use them. The second question, how does this passage relate to a Christian being sworn in to testify in court or to serve in the military? There's still some situations like this 
in modern America where we are called on to give some kind of oath. In fact, I'm not sure how much we realize it, but when we sign legal documents under penalty of perjury, we do that all the time. And we don't think twice about it, but what that is saying is you are needing something beyond the ordinary yes to verify you understand and that you are telling the truth. Sometimes they'll even be like on a tax return or something, that statement that, you know, this is something under penalty of perjury. I affirm or I swear that this is true. Well, many object to that wording, just on the basis of the wording, that the word swear or oath is in it. So, you know, you put your hand on a Bible and you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that seems too much because Jesus said, don't swear. They prefer the word, the word affirm or assert. And I understand that, but it seems to me that especially since Paul calls God to witness and kind of makes oaths, that uh, that's not a difficulty for Christians. Can I say it this way? I don't see any problem in a Christian whose word is already intended to be trustworthy and dependable to be called on to affirm what they're saying in a deeper way for the benefit of other people. Why would that bother me? If someone said, it's as if someone was saying, are you sure about that? Well, of course. If I wasn't sure about it, I wouldn't have said it. My yes is yes. But if someone says, well, I need to know that you're really sure about that, they might not understand that my yes is yes. But the oath there is not me calling on something else to say, no, I swear at this time it really is true. It's instead them calling on me to say, I'm not sure I can trust you. And that's not really something that is an indictment. It's just something that's a product of the society in which we live. So, rather than saying we should never be under oath, I kind of read Jesus' words as saying, remember you're always under oath. You're always under the observation of God. He always sees and hears what you say and do. So live that way. It seems to me we live in a world where people want legal mechanisms to protect us from other people's lies. And you know what? We do too, don't we? Because other people do lie and they can't be trusted. And especially if we're going to have dealings with them, we want to know that they're not going to be allowed legally to hurt us in ways that they might choose to if the law was not involved. But it seems to me we shouldn't object to having our words verified that way. And that's different from trying to borrow credibility or trying to deceive through some kind of loophole. So that's the way I read that. When we see we're being sworn in to testify, it doesn't mean that we would not tell the truth without the oath. It just means we're going to continue to tell the truth the way we always would. And if we're going to affirm something, whether that's in a military setting or even when we're avowing something to our mate when we are married... To me, those are all the same idea. I'm going to tell the truth, but I understand that you may need this and it may help you and it may add to an awareness of the seriousness of the situation for me to use it in this way. So between the fact that Paul and God use oath terminology and the fact that those things are not necessarily character flaws and issues, I don't see Matthew 5 eliminating this need uh, for being sworn in in those kinds of situations. All right, well, thank you so much for your attention. That's our Q&A for this morning. Keep sending me questions. We'll be dismissed for our classes now.